Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Not the first time the White House has been forced to clean up something President Biden said. The lead starts right now. A White House walk back after President Biden says the U.S. would get involved militarily if China were to ever attack U.S. ally Taiwan. And now China is responding. Plus, more suspected cases of monkeypox in the U.S. as investigators try to pinpoint how this virus is spreading and an explosive report of sex abuse cases inside the Southern Baptist Convention. Survivors repeatedly ignored and disbelieved by the largest Protestant denomination in the United States as leaders themselves tried to protect their own reputations instead of protecting the victims. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. We start with our world lead and top White House advisors caught off guard today by this response from President Biden when he was asked during a news conference in Tokyo if the U.S. would be willing to go further than it has with Ukraine to help Taiwan in the event of an invasion. You didn't want to get involved in the Ukraine conflict militarily for obvious reasons. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are. That's the commitment we made. Now, President Biden didn't specify what he meant by militarily, but the question defined the term as the U.S. military getting directly involved as it has not done in Ukraine, to which Biden said, yes, the White House rushed to clarify, saying that the Biden administration would send weapons, not troops, to help Taiwan. But it's a far cry from the delicacy and ambiguity we usually see from U.S. officials when they talk publicly about China and Taiwan. This is, we should note, the third time in recent months that President Biden has said the U.S. would protect Taiwan from a Chinese attack, only for the White House to walk back those remarks. CNN's MJ Lee starts off our coverage from Tokyo with more on the White House's attempted cleanup and China's forceful response to Biden's comments. A consequential one-word response from President Biden making major headlines during his inaugural trip to Asia as commander-in-chief. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. At a press conference in Tokyo, the president taking on the thorny and delicate issue of China-Taiwan relations. The idea that, that it could be taken by force, just taken by force, is just not, is just not appropriate. It will dislocate the entire region and be another action similar to what happened in in, uh, in Ukraine. That explicit commitment that the U.S. would get involved militarily and come to Taiwan's aid if China were to attack it, inviting more questions. Mr. President, China is now saying that the U.S. should be careful not to send the wrong message on, on Taiwan. Did you, did you send the wrong signal? 
and sending U.S. officials quickly scrambling. Would you put U.S. boots on the ground and defend Taiwan, Mr. President? In a statement afterwards, a White House official insisting that Biden was not suggesting any change in existing U.S. policy and that the president was referring to a commitment under the Taiwan Relations Act to provide Taiwan with the military means to defend itself. China hitting back at Biden's remarks in a statement, warning the president to be cautious in words and deeds on the Taiwan issue. I don't want to call this not the first time China that Biden has strongly suggested U.S. military involvement to defend Taiwan. So are you China. saying that, that the United States would come to Taiwan's defense if yes, China attacked? Yes, we have a commitment to do that. And Biden, hardly the first U.S. president to take such a position. You have said publicly the U.S. would commit military forces if China attacked Taiwan. I will do what it takes to help Taiwan defend herself, and the Chinese must understand that. The spotlight on Taiwan coming as Biden pushes for strengthening U.S. alliances in the Indo-Pacific region in the face of China's growing influence. In Tokyo, the U.S., alongside a dozen other countries, unveiling a new economic framework. The future of the 21st century economy is going to be largely written in the Indo-Pacific, in our region. We're writing the new rules for the 21st century economy. Now, the sun has just started to rise here as the president kicks off his final day here in Asia. Later today, he is going to be participating in the Quad Summit. This is a summit of the leaders of the U.S., Japan, Australia and India. He is going to have a couple of bilateral meetings as well. And then he heads back to Washington, Jake, where there are a couple of key uh, issues that are going to be waiting for him, including inflation, the baby formula shortage. And of course, the war in Ukraine is going to continue being top of mind for the president as well. Jake. MJ Lee in Tokyo, thanks so much. Also in the world lead today, a Russian diplomat handing in his notice, saying he's never been so ashamed of his country's actions. Boris Bondarev, a 20-year veteran of Russia's diplomatic service, quit his post at the United Nations this morning, sending his former colleagues a scathing takedown of Vladimir Putin, writing, quote, the aggressive war unleashed by Putin against Ukraine and, in fact, against the entire Western world is not only a crime against the Ukrainian people, but also perhaps the most serious crime against the people of Russia. CNN's Nick Robertson joins us now live. Nick, how, how rare of a public statement is this? From such a senior diplomat in, in a good assignment in Geneva, of, uh, apparently until now very good standing within the Russian foreign ministry, um, this is quite significant. Uh, let's not forget the, the mission that he serves at in Geneva is one that's already seen the rebound effect of Putin's war in Ukraine because that was the mission where the Russian representative for the United Nations uh, High Commission uh, 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 Human Rights Council um, their representative was thrown off there. So this is a mission that, that, that has seen firsthand the world's reaction. This diplomat is clearly utterly incensed, as you're describing it there. Um, he says that this is a war not just against Ukraine, but against the world, a crime not just against Ukrainians, about Russians. Why does he say it's against Russians? Because he says essentially that snuffs out the possibility of a free and prosperous society in the future. But there's also a very strong rebuke for his boss, Sergei Lavrov, 
Lavrov, the uh, Russian foreign minister, saying that the foreign ministry is no longer interested in diplomacy and sober um, intelligence estimates. This is now about about hatred and warmongering. But perhaps his most uh, uh, stinging criticism uh, is of of President Putin and the other leaders. And I read it to you because this will resonate with Russian people. He says... Those who conceived this war want only one thing, to remain in power forever, to live in pompous, tasteless palaces, and I'll come back to that, Uh, sail on yachts that compare in tonnage and cost to the entire Russian Navy, and enjoy unlimited power and complete impunity. To achieve that, they are willing to sacrifice as many lives as it takes. Why is that going to resonate? Well, I know from my own experiences in Russia earlier this year that a lot of people believe that Putin is willing to sacrifice as many lives as it takes. And remember, uh, remember his biggest opposition critic, Alexei Navalny, jailed late last year. Well, his biggest expose on President Putin was the alleged palace that he lived in. This is designed to resonate and hit uh, and hit home and hit home hard. All right, Nick Robertson, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Now to the latest in Ukraine. Today, a panel of judges in Kyiv sentenced a 21-year-old Russian soldier to life in prison for killing an unarmed Ukrainian civilian. This is the first soldier in Putin's army to be found guilty of committing a war crime since the invasion began in February. The Biden administration is also considering a plan to bolster security around the U.S. embassy in Kyiv with special operations forces. U.S. officials want to make it clear the move should not be seen as escalatory, as some former U.S. special ops forces have decided to join Ukraine's fight on their own. And CNN's Sam Kiley has this exclusive report about that. How did you know where to go? We didn't. We just knew the enemy was this way. Go, 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 go. We just hop through these backyards and clear through here. It's not as straightforward as it sounds. He's going to go into that building. Veterans of years of counterinsurgency warfare, this small team of American and British fighters is under Ukrainian command. And they now look at war down the other end of the barrel and have asked us to conceal their identities for their own security. This is a war that has a moral clarity for these volunteers in Ukraine's international legion. You know, people keep saying, oh, you're doing it for democracy. It's really not, you know. It's, it's really comes down to good versus evil. I never figured out why they were killing women and children. And it wasn't by accident, it was murder. I mean, we found many people just up the end of the street that were bound together and shot, thrown on the side of the road. Many in Kevin's team, ex-Special Forces operators, have had millions spent on their training in the West, in countries that won't send troops to war with Russia. Among the first into Irpin, they took over this house behind enemy lines, He says the team killed dozens of Russians in the park below. He says that the fighting and the shelling and the Russian killing of civilians was relentless. Two two pro-Russians in here. As Kevin's team advanced, he says they got trapped in this health spa for several days. It was steadily torn apart by Russian artillery. This was the house of hell. This was four really miserable days of really little sleep, really heavy artillery, really heavy um, infantry presence from from the Russians. Kevin's small team is funded largely by donations to the Ukrainian Legion. It operates mostly behind Russian lines, and they were stunned at first at being on the receiving end of airstrikes and heavy artillery. 
but they're applying the lessons of Iraq and Afghanistan to Russia and believe that they're having an effect on the enemy. There's definitely a psychological aspect to it. We do know that the Russians were talking about, um, hey, they're up, like we can't figure out where they're at. We don't know what's happening. We were being artilleried so heavy that we put this chair here so we could jump out this window if we had to in a hurry. Deeper into the spa, he comes across evidence that Russia plays dirty, even in local defeat. So a lot of the Russians came back through some of these places and remind them. We'll put booby traps, and you can see this cable goes back into the ground where it's been intentionally buried, and then it's tied off here. So far, this group has not lost a soldier. Definitely a nightmare. But that time may come. It's a risk, he says, he's prepared to take, because for the West's former warriors in the war on terror, Ukraine has given them something back. One way or the other, they've, they've either been lost or they've lost everything. So this has given them another chance. You know, they come back here and it's like they've put their life back together. Now, Jake, the uh, level of casualties is unknown. There are no accurate figures on this war, but as you can see there, it's intense and it's bloody. Then the latest figures that could be relied upon, though, coming from President Zelensky saying that 50 to 100 Ukrainians are dying in the eastern battlefront itself alone every day, Jake. Sam Kiley and Keith, thank you so much. Coming up next, from gas prices to a rising cost of living, are your leaders in Congress doing anything to help you get by? We'll talk to a top Senate Democrat. Plus, the deadly end to an apparent love triangle. An elite cyclist shot and killed ahead the search for the other woman who's accused of murder. And we're back with our politics lead. Is it a gaffe if he keeps saying it? President Biden saying today the U.S. would intervene militarily if China attempted to take Taiwan by force. And as MJ Lee noted, the president has said this before, and now his comments are putting U.S. officials in a tough spot. At a Pentagon briefing today, Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin declined to say if U.S. troops could be sent to Taiwan. Would you support sending U.S. troops to Taiwan? I will render my advice at the moment in time to the president. And the Secretary of Defense. Is the U.S. making a commitment by saying that they are willing to, de to defend them militarily for U.S. troops to be involved in that military response? Again, Courtney, I think the president was clear on the fact that the policy has not changed. Let's bring in Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. He's on the Foreign Relations Committee. Senator Murphy, you heard General Milley and Secretary Austin in that clip, re reluctant to answer the question, speaking to just how sensitive the issue is. Are you surprised that President Biden went as far as he did today? Well, I think I'll be interested to hear from the administration this week as to whether our policy has changed. Uh, our policy has been the same since 1979, which has been that we're going to help Taiwan defend itself and we're going to leave open the question of whether the United States would come to the defense of Taiwan. Obviously, you can't put U.S. troops in defense of Taiwan without a authorization of military force from Congress. So we shouldn't pretend like the president actually has the final say on this matter. He would have to get authorization from us. Um, but whether or not um, it is the president's belief that we should uh, defend Taiwan, um, that's up to him. Um, and he seems to have said on repeated occasions that uh, he believes it would be in the United States' interest to defend Taiwan. He would still need Congress to authorize that war if it ever came to it. Let's all hope that it doesn't. A uh, Russian diplomat at the U.N., uh, Boris Bondarev, resigned today. He said in a letter that he was ashamed 
of his country when Russia invaded Ukraine. It, it was pretty striking to hear a top-level diplomat rebuking Putin, a top-level Russian uh, diplomat. Do, do you think more Russian diplomats could follow suit? Well, I think Russia's economy is in a, a free fall, um, and there are going to be um, perhaps millions of Russians who are going to try to get out of that country when they have a chance and come to the West because uh, these sanctions are, are going to be significant and crippling and Russia is going to run out of oil revenues uh, at some point. I don't think this will be the end of diplomats sort of using this political moment as a mechanism to come to the United States. There was a long tradition of this during the Cold War, um, but the dynamics here are probably as much about economics in Russia as they are uh, about uh, about politics. Uh, this is good news, but, you know, frankly, I, I don't think it changes Putin's disposition. He's backed into a corner, but I think he's likely in this fight for the long haul, which is why Congress has to be in this fight for the long haul, continuing to approve aid to Ukraine. Speaking of Congress, uh, Democrats are facing a tough reelection cycle. Gas prices at a record high, families struggling to find infant formula, the cost of living is high. What do you tell voters when they say, what are Democrats doing to help American families? Yeah, listen, these are all you know, real struggles. And I was just you know, in Connecticut all weekend. I heard it directly from folks in Connecticut. As you know, there's a flip side, which is that we have you know, almost no unemployment in this country, structurally low unemployment, almost nobody filing for unemployment benefits. We have an economy that is growing, and that has meant pressure on prices. But more importantly, the global supply chain crisis, in particular what's going on in China as they shut down their economy, has a huge impact here. But that can't be our answer. Our Democrats' answer can't simply be it's beyond our control, which is why we should continue to press for the president's Build Back Better agenda, which is all about getting some short-term relief to families right now, tax cuts, help for child care costs, lower prescription drug costs to um, try to deal with what will be a temporary surge in prices while COVID still wreaks havoc well, on the global supply chain. I don't mean to be rude, but your, your pitch is legislation that Democrats couldn't get passed? Well, ultimately, these elections are about choices, right? Um, so voters can choose the Democratic Party, which has over and over again tried to pass legislation that actually lowers people's costs, or they can choose the Republican Party, who has stood in the way of lowering those costs and has actually no plan to combat rising prices. Democrats have a plan. It's just that we haven't been able to convince um, enough Republicans to go along with us. That's the choice in front of voters this November. You have some Democrats you need to work on, too. Senator Chris Murphy, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks. Two of the biggest names in the GOP loom large over tomorrow's primary in Georgia. The must-watch race pitting former President Donald Trump against his own former vice president, Mike Pence. That's next. In our politics lead, voters in Georgia are just one day away from their midterm primary. A lot of attention on the Republican side between Trump's favorite, a fellow 2020 election denier, and former Senator David Perdue, and the incumbent Republican Governor Brian Kemp, whom Trump is mad at for upholding the law and certifying the legal votes of the people of Georgia. As CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports for us now, former Vice President Mike Pence's break with Trump and full-throated support for Kemp has the governor feeling peachy. One day before Georgia's primary election, a new chapter on an old grievance. Governor Brian Kemp is not only running for re-election, but he's trying to move beyond relentless criticism from Donald Trump, who's been nursing a grudge at Kemp and other Republicans for refusing to overturn the last election. And our vice president, Mike Pence. To make his point, 
Kemp invited former Vice President Mike Pence for the final rally of the campaign tonight, putting a fresh spotlight on the long-simmering conflict between the former president and his once-loyal partner. President Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. The governor is hoping for a big win over his chief rival, former Senator David Perdue, who Trump convinced to challenge Kemp in one of his riskiest gambits of the midterm campaign season. Brian Kemp is a turncoat, he's a coward, and he's a complete and total disaster. Kemp has repeatedly declined to engage, as he did again today on a call with reporters. I've never said anything bad about him. I don't plan on uh, doing that. I'm not mad at him. I think he's just mad at me, and that's something that I can't control. His campaign has not been about Trump, but rather focused on a potential rematch with Stacey Abrams, who's running unopposed in the Democratic primary. Heading into Election Day, more than 857,000 people have already cast their ballots, a record early vote for an off-year race in a battleground where voting rights is at the center of the debate. While many Republicans have made clear they're eager to look forward. He just can't get over the fact that he couldn't tell Brian Kemp what to do in Georgia. Trump's obsession with narrowly losing Georgia has loomed large, up and down the Georgia primary ballot. He endorsed Congressman Jody Heiss to challenge the state's top election official, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Jody is running against one of the worst Secretary of States in America, Rhino Brad Raffensperger, who is trying to turn the tables on me because I'm fighting for election integrity. Raffensperger famously refused to help Trump overturn the election in a call that remains part of an ongoing criminal investigation into election interference. GOP voters will determine his fate Tuesday. As long as I am Secretary of State, Georgia will lead the nation in election security and election integrity and accessibility. Now it is the governor's race here that has top billing tomorrow. And Kemp is not only trying to win, he's trying to win big. If he gets more than 50% of the vote, he avoids a June runoff election. But Jake, all eyes here are on the former vice president. He'll be having a rally here in this airport hangar tonight. And the uh, former president, President Trump, not wasting any time, his spokesman taking a pretty hard shot at Mike Pence. He's saying he's desperate to chase lost relevance, trying to parachute into this campaign. So what this is, certainly a debut for Mike Pence as he's eyeing a political future of his own, Jake. All right, Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's break down these numbers with CNN senior data reporter Harry Enten. Harry, what is the data telling you about Trump's pick for Georgia governor, former Senator Perdue? Uh, it's not looking good uh, for Trump's pick. Uh, you know, Jeff pointed out an important number, and that is 50 percent, right? That is what you need to avoid a runoff. And this is a Fox News poll from last week. And what do we see? Well, we see that Brian Kemp is well above that 50 percent mark. He's at 60 percent. Dave Perdue at just 28 percent. And if you want to talk about momentum going forward, look, back in March, Kemp was only at 50 percent. He's up 10 points. Perdue is actually, in fact, down 11 points. What was an 11-point margin is now up to 32 points with Kemp, well above that 50% threshold. Although I must admit, looking through history, I'm not that surprised because gubernatorial primaries this past month have really not necessarily gone Trump's way. You look at Idaho last week, what did you see? You saw a Trump-endorsed candidate lose. You look at Nebraska a week before that, another Trump-endorsed candidate losing. And in Ohio, at the beginning of the month, although Trump didn't endorse anybody, there were three pro-Trump challengers to Mike DeWine, the incumbent governor, and they all lost to DeWine in a pretty clear matchup. So if Kemp, in fact, wins tomorrow, that would line up with what we've been generally seeing in the month of May so far. Why do you think Purdue is struggling? 
Uh, I think that there are a few reasons why Purdue is struggling, not the least of which is that Brian Kemp is actually quite popular in the state. But look, look at Trump's endorsement of Purdue. How does that, what does that make you do, essentially? Does it make you more supportive of Purdue? Well, we see 37% of voters, Republican voters in Georgia say, yeah, it does. But then add up this 24%, which is less supportive of Purdue. That's a very large number in the Republican primary. And the no effect at 36%, you get a majority of voters, Republican primary voters in the state of Georgia, saying that that endorsement that Trump made either makes them less supportive of Trump's candidate or no effect. And here's the thing that I will also note, which is bring this out nationally. Bring this out nationally, Jake. And what do we see? Look, Trump is still a popular guy nationally among Republicans. This is his very favorable rating. So this isn't just the light. This is the love. We really love Trump. Back on election eve of 2020, it was 72%. Now it's still a majority at 53%, but that is down significantly. So we're dealing with a Republican base that still really likes Trump, but does it really love him as much? Perhaps not. There are a few Senate races tomorrow. Uh, I want to talk about the one in Alabama because Trump endorsed Congressman Mo Brooks for this open Senate seat, but then he took the endorsement back. What's the status of that primary? (laughs) Yeah, it's like Lazarus coming back from the dead, I think, essentially. Mo Brooks, who was left for dead, essentially, when Trump withdrew that endorsement, he was double digits behind a runoff spot. Now, without Trump's endorsement, He's in a dead heat for that runoff spot. So Mo Brooks may be able to reach that runoff without Trump's support. I'll just note, finally, though, in the state of Georgia, that Senate race, Herschel Walker, that's a Trump-endorsed candidate. He will, in fact, win that. So a bright spot. But overall, tomorrow, Jake, it could be Trump's worst day of May so far. All right, Harry Enten, fascinating. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. What may be a common link between many of the new monkeypox cases that are now popping up. Stay with us. In our health lead now, new lights on the mysterious global outbreak of monkeypox. The viral illness begins with flu-like symptoms and eventually causes these awful-looking skin lesions, although it is rarely fatal. Monkeypox historically has been mostly seen in Africa, but it's turning up in countries around the globe now, especially in Europe, but also here in the United States. A report issued today by the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control says, quote, the currently diagnosed human monkeypox, monkeypox cases are primarily among men who have sex with men, which suggests the transmission may take place during intimate relations, unquote. The statement goes on to warn, quoting again, quote, the likelihood of further spread of the virus through close contact, for example, during sexual activities among persons with multiple sexual partners, is considered to be high, unquote. Let's bring in Dr. Peter Hotez, who specializes in tropical medicine and vaccine development. Dr. Hotez, based on all of this, Is it mostly men involved in these intimate relations who are more likely to get monkeypox? That seems to be the major profile, although there's nothing intrinsic about monkeypox to make you think that it's only going to be uh, men. For instance, this, this virus is probably not transmitted through sexual intercourse or sexual relations, but rather just close intimate contact. So, what we're seeing so far, about 200 cases globally, uh, confirmed and suspected cases, about half in Portugal, uh, in Spain, that may have arisen out of, a, out of an event in, in the Canary Islands uh, earlier, uh, but that's still speculative. This came out from uh, uh, Dr. David Heyman, former uh, assistant director general of the World Health Organization and an advisor, uh, possibly a second uh, event out of, out of Belgium, but they're still doing the outbreak investigation. Um, the, 
what we're seeing so far that is unusual is the fact that we have multiple foci of infection beyond Portugal and Spain, as I've just pointed out, the UK, Belgium, and now Canada, and, and several cases in the US. So it's a bit of a medical puzzle so far, but we're slowly getting the pieces together. It, it doesn't seem, though, that one would have to have visible lesions in order for one to be infectious, I, I would guess, right? Well, typically, um, the infectious, the time you are infectious is around the time when you do have that rash or there, you may possibly be infectious a, a day before. Uh, but generally speaking, yes. And so th that actually, in its own uh, interesting way, is good news because it means that you can identify uh, people who are potentially transmitting the infection, just like we did when we were eradicating smallpox, which is a related virus. You use the fact that somebody had a rash in order to identify uh, all of the contacts. So the fact that that's possible makes it a lot easier to do the contact tracing than something like COVID-19, where you have many, many asymptomatic uh, individuals. And the fact that we have um, a, a good array of vaccines, we have at least three different vaccines for smallpox that will likely cross-protect against monkeypox, and two antiviral drugs for smallpox that will do the same. So we're in a much, much better position because it's easier to do the contact tracing, the transmissibility is less, and we have a, a, a great um, uh, artillery system of uh, drugs and vaccines available to the us. CDC just confirmed that the U.S. is in the process of releasing monkeypox vaccine from the national stockpile for people at high risk. Who does that include? Could smallpox vaccines also be effective? They could be. Um, there's both the um, replicating smallpox vaccine, which is the old uh, school uh, smallpox vaccine, similar to the one that was used to eradicate smallpox. And there's a non-replicating virus that's made by Bavarian Nordic. So um, we'll have to see which one they, they ultimately decide uh, to release. And then you've got to decide who are, who are going to be eligible for those vaccines. Likely high-risk groups that have had contact uh, with individuals doing that so-called ring vaccination. I I doubt um, the FDA and CDC will recommend a widespread vaccination campaign, especially with only three cases in the United States known so far. But we'll see how this evolves and whether additional cases pop up. Remember, there's about a two-week incubation period, so it's not like um, the COVID B two one two variant where that shows up after a couple of days. So it takes a couple of weeks. So we'll have to see how this evolves, and we're just going to have to be a bit patient about that. All right, Dr. Peter Hotez, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the bombshell report from inside the Southern Baptist Convention. How the organization's leaders tried to protect themselves while allegedly ignoring sex abuse survivors who were trying to come forward. Stay with us. In our faith lead, the explosive fallout of an investigation into 20 years of sexual abuse and cover-up involving one of the largest religious denominations in the United States. Leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention were found to have mishandled sex abuse claims along with a pattern of intimidation of victims or advocates who reported abuse. The report also says the SBC resisted reform initiatives. The Southern Baptist Convention has about 14 million members involved in more than 47,000 churches across the United States. CNN's Tom Foreman now takes a closer look at this disturbing report. 
For America's largest Protestant denomination, the report is a blistering takedown of top church leaders, saying they routinely met accusations of sexual abuse by clergy and staff with resistance, stonewalling, and even outright hostility. To give to you, Lord. Among the survivors named Krista Brown, who says she was sexually assaulted by a minister more than 30 times. She has tweeted, At the parsonage, after one of worst of pastor's rapes, he put me, 16 years old, in shower and stood yelling at me to clean better down there. I only knew to cry. He knew to destroy evidence. This is an apocalypse, an unveiling, a a meltdown. And uh, people are reeling all over the country right now, not just uh, Baptists, but also the entire uh, evangelical world. The SBC response, to the members of the survivor community, we are grieved by the findings. We are committed to doing all we can to prevent future instances of sexual abuse in churches, to improve our response and our care to remove reporting roadblocks. Still, the report says an executive committee staff member kept a list of hundreds of names of accused people with ties to the church since 2007. Yet some leaders were so focused on avoiding lawsuits, they did nothing. Accusers were ignored, disbelieved, their claims called a satanic scheme, even if it meant that convicted molesters continued in ministry with no notice or warning to their current church or congregation. Victims groups have long called for accountability. The church needs a day of reckoning. It needs to be a stripping down to the basis, basics of everything that you say you stand for everything that you claim to represent. One senior leader named in the report, Johnny Hunt, was himself accused of sexually assaulting another pastor's wife in 2010. Hunt's reply, to put it bluntly, I vigorously deny the circumstances and characterizations. I have never abused anybody. In less than a month, the SBC will meet for its annual convention and decide if there will be consequences. That will require not just bad people to be held accountable, although that's true, but for good people to not look away. Of course, this is a validation for all the people who've been raising alarms about this for years. But when you read all the details of this report, the denials, the deflections, the attempts to defend the clergy, even when they were believed to be in the wrong, Jake, you're really struck by the notion that even in the the context of building this report, There were specific warnings to church leaders to say, this looks a lot like what happened with the Catholic Church and the pedophile priest problem. Don't do it. And they kept going that way anyway, and that's where we are today. It's tragic. Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Turning to our national lead in a manhunt underway for a Texas woman accused of murdering an elite cyclist who allegedly had a relationship with her boyfriend. 34-year-old Marie Armstrong, seen on the left, is wanted in the shooting death of 25-year-old Anna Mariah Wilson, pictured on the right, back on May 11th. CNN's Ed Lavendera reports on the love triangle that appears to have gone terribly wrong. She is snaking through into the finish. This is Mariah Wilson. Anna Mariah Wilson was considered one of the best gravel racing cyclists in the world. She was known as Mo. The champ is in the house. This is Mariah Wilson. On May 11th, she was in Austin, Texas, preparing for an upcoming race. Austin police say that night, Mo Wilson was found murdered in the bathroom of a friend's home. She was shot multiple times. According to a police affidavit, on the day Wilson was murdered, she went to a public swimming pool and had dinner with fellow cyclist Colin Strickland. 
The two had a brief romantic relationship in the fall of 2021 while Strickland was on a break from his relationship with Caitlin Marie Armstrong, who he had dated for about three years. The police affidavit states that Armstrong was furious and shaking in anger when she learned of Strickland's romantic relationship with Wilson in January. Austin police say surveillance video shows Armstrong's car pulling up next to the house around the time Wilson was murdered and that a gun discovered in the house where she lived with Strickland is potentially the same firearm. The day after the murder, Caitlin Armstrong was interviewed by investigators and presented with the evidence. The police affidavit described Armstrong was very still and guarded as investigators detailed what they had discovered. She then requested to leave. A week later, U.S. Marshals announced they were assisting in a search for Armstrong. But the 34-year-old woman has disappeared since her interview with police. Happy Just weeks before her murder, Mo Wilson was celebrating with friends after winning the Belgian waffle ride in California. These are the last images of her competing in a sport she dominated. Wilson is described as a role model, yet shy and compassionate. An athlete who developed an intense passion for cycling while growing up on the bike trails of Vermont. And Jake, in a statement to the Austin American Statesman newspaper, uh, Colin Strickland says that he cannot uh, adequately express the torture and pain that he feels for his proximity to this case. And Mo Wilson's family says that they want to clarify that they do not believe she was involved in a romantic relationship with anyone at the time of her murder. Jake? Ed Lavendera reporting from Dallas for us. Thank you so much. Coming up ahead, the food crisis tied to Russia's war in Ukraine. Next, the new satellite images that may very well show Russia in the act, stealing wheat and grain. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, just over a month since a gunman terrorized a subway car full of passengers and now... Police are looking for answers in a new deadly shooting on the New York City subway in the middle of the day. Plus, many Democrats claimed a controversial law would deter voters. President Biden even called it Jim Crow 2.0, but Georgia's new voting law might be having the opposite effect. And leading this hour, a drop of relief to the baby formula shortage has arrived in the United States from Germany. But you will not see these bottles on store shelves because it is a prescription formula meant specifically for babies who are allergic to cow's milk. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen joins us now live. Elizabeth, that first delivery of formula that arrived yesterday will feed only 27,000 babies and toddlers for one week. Clearly, the U.S. is going to need many more of these shipments or a completely different strategy. I think at this point, that is a major part of the strategy is to do these imports. I want to say there are other things that have gone on. For example, the other big major infant manufacturer, infant formula manufacturer, Reckitt, that's uh, also known as Mead Johnson. They've been ramping up production 35 percent since February. So that's a lot. And still we are experiencing these shortages. So let's take a look at Operation Fly Formula. That was the uh, what you were referencing earlier, Jake. I was there last weekend to witness it. It was really quite something. So between the flights this past weekend and the one that's going to take place on Wednesday, it'll be the equivalent of 1.5 million eight ounce bottles in those two flights. So again, the first flight landed Sunday. It was hypoallergenic formula for hospitals, pharmacies, doctors that is not going to supermarket shelves. The second flight, the one Wednesday, is also hyperallergenic formula. It is unclear where that is going. So even with all these attention to these airlifts, 
uh, parents may not see shelves looking very different. It's going to take a while until they really notice that things are getting better. Jake? Elizabeth, more babies are being hospitalized due to the shortage. What do we know about their condition? Could we see even more infants going to the hospital? I think we could, unfortunately, because this shortage is going to continue for a while. The babies that we've heard of, Jake, they have conditions, and some of them are actually children. They have medical conditions where they need a very, very specific formula, and their parents tried to find replacements, and they couldn't, and the children didn't tolerate it well. And so the children got dehydrated. They're now being fed on G-tubes, on tubes into their stomach. I'm not saying that there are a lot of these children out there. We don't have a number, but we have heard from a number of hospitals that this is going, including MUSC, which is in South Carolina. We spoke to one of their dietitians. Let's take a listen. The majority of what we've seen is when patients are on like specialized formulas for like feeding intolerance or milk protein allergies or something specific related to their disease state, and they try an alternative and it doesn't go well. Now, let us hope let us hope, Jake, that some of the, the shipments that are happening now from Europe, these hypoallergenic formulas, it will help some of the patients who Christy Fogg was just talking about. Jake? Elizabeth Cohen, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now is Brian Dees. He's the White House Director of the National Economic Council. Brian, thanks for joining us. So the Biden administration announced the second shipment of baby formula is going to leave Germany on Wednesday as part of what you guys call Operation Fly Formula. The first delivery, though, it's only going to feed about 27,000 babies and only for one week. Have you guys done the calculations? How many more international shipments will the U.S. need? Well, the international shipments are one component of the strategy here. We're going to, we're in the process right now of identifying additional sources outside the United States and working on additional flights as well. So you will see more of this. We're going to build on the progress to date. As you said, the flight that landed yesterday, that is a specialized medical grade formula. That amount alone is about 15% of the total national volume for that type of formula for this coming week. The second piece, though, is we need to get all of our domestic manufacturing capacity to 100%, more than 100% production, and make sure that we keep it uh, at that. We made a lot of progress on that over the course of last week at getting manufacturing to be running over time and full tilt. Now we're using the Defense Production Act to make sure those manufacturers have full access to all of the input supplies that they need so that over the course of this coming week they can continue to run at full capacity so that we're not only relying on production that's coming in from abroad but also production that we can ramp up here in the United States as well. The baby formula business as you know in the United States is dominated by three or four major players. The, the recall in Abbott happened back in February. President Biden only invoked the Defense Production Act last week. Why was the Biden administration so slow to respond to this crisis? Well, we acted immediately, and here's, here's what happened, which is in mid-February, as you said, that Abbott facility was closed. Immediately after that, the FDA began working with the other producers. As you say, there's too few producers in this market. We're going to have to address that over the long term, but began working with them to ramp up their production. That got us to the point where, as of last week, the other producers... Uh, in the United States had gotten their production up 50%, 30% to really record levels. That's where the Defense Production Act comes in because sustaining that production at those record levels means that these producers need to have access to all of the supplies that they need, not only the inputs to make formula, but also the bottles, the different packaging. 
and we want them to be able to run at that very high level without having uh, any impeded access to supply. So that's where uh, the Defense Production Act comes in. But there's another piece of this too, which is our retailers, when those products get to market, our retailers need to have the flexibility to actually sell and our consumers to buy whatever type of product that they have and to do so safely. So we've got to waive a bunch of regulations that traditionally make sense but don't make sense in this crisis. And we also have to make sure that people are not going in, buying up out of the retailers, large amounts of formula, and then selling them for exorbitant prices online. The FDA, I mean, the whistleblower contacted the FDA, I think back in September or October. They didn't do an inspection until December. The recall didn't happen until February. Are you confident that the FDA is on the case and not too close to industry, as is a criticism of the FDA for decades now? The FDA has a incredibly important safety mission, and that's particularly the case when it comes to babies uh, and infants and our children. Um, and I will leave it to them to d describe the exact circumstances, but what happened here was a thorough investigation. They need to go in and really examine what the sources of the potential uh, negative impacts are, try to connect them to where they could be happening, and then make a determination. They did so in February, and that recall happened as a result of those actions, and then since then have been working to try to increase production. Right now, our focus is on getting that formula out to the families that need it, by bringing it in from abroad, by increasing production and manufacturing here, and then also by giving our retailers the flexibility to sell what they need and not have it taken and expropriated for exorbitant prices online. Speaking of exorbitant prices, um, another issue affecting Americans right now is skyrocketing gas prices. Today, on average, gas is costing $4.60 a gallon. That's up more than 10 cents a gallon from last week, almost 50 cents from last month. We're one week away from Memorial Day. Should Americans be buckling up for these high prices for the entire summer? Well, we're doing every, everything we can to try to bring those prices down. Uh, as you know, uh, this all emanates from uh, Putin's decision to invade Ukraine which took Russian all oil of off the market. Not all of it. I mean, some of it, yes. But. Since, just, just to be really clear, since troops started amassing on the Ukrainian border and there was the concern that Russian supplies would come off, we've seen prices at the pump go up $1.50. That is the price hike that is associated with the impact of taking Russian supply off the market, but also, to your point, Russian refining capacity as well, because we have not only a shortage of supply of oil, but also the refining capacity to turn that oil into gasoline and diesel as well. So we're doing everything we can to bring more supply onto the market, working with domestic industry. They're ramping up. They can't do it fast enough, so we're releasing from our domestic reserves. We're also trying to work around the, uh, around the world wherever there is spare refining capacity to try to get uh, to turn that oil into gas and diesel that we can use uh, for production here. Brian Deese, thanks so much. Appreciate it. The new images that appear to show a Russian theft with global implications. CNN got the exclusive images. Plus, more from my exclusive interview with Trevor Reed and his family. Their message to certain members of Congress. Stay with us. In our worldly new exclusive satellite images from Maxar Technologies appear to show Russian ships stealing Ukrainian grain from a port in Crimea. Ukrainian officials and industry sources have told CNN that Russian forces in occupied areas have emptied silos and trucked the grain south. CNN's Alex Marquardt got an exclusive look at Maxar's satellite factory and reports on how their images have helped uncover many of the dramatic and tragic events in this war. 
These new satellite images show what appear to be the ramping up of theft by Russia of Ukrainian grain being poured into the open hold of a Russian ship. This was in the Crimean port of Sevastopol on May 19th. Then, two days later, a second ship docks and it too is filled. Now, both Russian ships are sailing away. This weekend, President Volodymyr Zelensky accused Russia of fueling a food crisis and of gradually stealing Ukraine's food supplies and trying to sell them. An earlier image from Maxar Technologies shows one of those same Russian ships in a port of their close ally, Syria, the Ukrainian grain waiting to be unloaded onto trucks. These extraordinary, revealing images are so close and so clear that they look like they could be taken by drone or helicopter. You can actually see the grain pouring into the open hold of the ship. Stephen Wood and his team at Maxar spotted the ships in this much wider image of Crimea. This is 400 miles up in space. To be able to see that kind of level of detail, the ships, the cab of the truck, pretty phenomenal stuff. Maxar and other commercial satellite companies have played a critical role in what we know about Russia's war in Ukraine, with satellite imagery that is unprecedented, both in quality and how it's being used. Before, this was only available in the halls of CIA or the U.S. government or friendly foreign governments, to now we're showing it on CNN. We're keeping a very close eye on that column of Russian vehicles, that convoy we've been talking about for several days. They alerted the world to the famous 40-mile-long Russian convoy outside Kiev, the rows of hundreds of mass graves near Mariupol, potential war crimes in Bucha, and the aftermath of the Russian bombing of the Mariupol theater. The satellite is in the final stages of getting ready to uh, be shipped very soon. We were given a rare tour of Maxar's satellite factory in Palo Alto, California, by CEO Dan Jablonski. Joint projects with NASA and others. Construction underway on six new Maxar satellites, which will allow them to scan a single spot on Earth 15 times a day. For decades, Maxar has provided all kinds of images to both private clients and to the U.S. government, their biggest customer. How much does the U.S. government tell you where to look? They tell us where to point the satellites and take the imagery, and, and then that's what we feed into them as a service, the same way we, do, we would do for uh, Google Maps, for example. Will the intelligence community, for example, say, we know that there is a war crime that has been committed, there are all these mass graves, for example, train your satellites there, and then push out those images to the press? They actually, they might ask us to make those collections, uh, but they don't, they do not influence or ask us to necessarily put out, put out where we're putting out to the, the public. Maxar is now giving imagery to the Ukrainian government, part of the U.S. aid for Ukraine. In a fight, the U.S. and others now say, that has resulted in Russian war crimes. To what extent are your images going to be critical in these war crimes investigations? For example, the bodies that were found on the street in, in Bucha. We had imagery correlating at the exact same time where these bodies were, down to the, the place, the time, and the moment. It's having that kind of fidelity of data that we now have that makes that possible. And I, I ultimately think it will play an important part. Each one of those Russian cargo ships that we showed you there in, in those new satellite images carries 30,000 tons of grain. Russia, of course, denies that they're stealing that grain. But what they aren't taking, they are targeting or blocking from getting out of the country, which is, of course, devastating for Ukraine and, Jake, the entire world, which depends so much on that food that comes from Ukraine. Alex Marquardt, thanks so much. Appreciate that exclusive report. While he was being held in a Russian prison for 985 days, his family was back in the U.S. fighting for Trevor Reed's release. Now they're sharing 
One of the most frustrating parts of the fight, we have some new clips from our exclusive interview with Trevor and his family. Stay with us. Trevor Reed is back in the United States and adjusting to life as a free man after 985 days as a prisoner in Russia. In our exclusive sit-down with Trevor Reed and his family, he discussed everything from the horrific conditions he was held in to the surreal moment he was handed over to U.S. officials and seeing his family again. The entire time Trevor was detained, his family was fighting for his release, appealing to anyone who would listen. But the Reeds were frankly frustrated with some people they say had the power to help Trevor, but did not. To a certain extent, there was a certain apathy that Trevor described in the Russian government with some of our elected officials, because if it's not about them getting a vote, they're too busy to deal with it. And this is an American issue. Not Trevor, but all the other Americans that are in a situation. You know, we used to go to war over these things, and now it's lucky if we get news time about it. And they need to start bringing all of our Americans home that are taken, like Trevor was. We had bipartisan resolutions in Congress and Senate, and still handfuls of people would not sign them. And they all got very strongly worded emails from me, but it's, it's yeah. outrageous to think that there would... It's, anybody that we elected or put in these positions that would not be... Marjorie Taylor Greene is not our representative. The day before Trevor's appeal hearing, uh, where they were going to give the decision, um, she called for every resolution and every bill in the House that day to have a roll call vote, so they would just put them off. And And they didn't have to do that on Trevor's. This was a call for Putin to release an American Marine. But she called for a roll call vote. It got put off to the next day where they rolled them all into one roll call vote. And her and her cronies and that small group of idiots voted against it. So you voted for Putin? I'm going to go to every single one of their campaigns and thank them personally about that. So Thank them for hurting your ability yeah. to get out of prison? Yeah, thank them for voting against a bill that was only about getting American political prisoners out of Russia. How do you... How do you justify that? That's embarrassing to me that anyone who represents the United States would would vote against something, you know, like that. I'm sure that the Russians love that. I'm sure that, you know, they're all big fans of all of those congressmen who did that. That's completely unacceptable unacceptable to me. It's embarrassing. Um, And... I better not ever see that happen again to any other Americans because I promise that I will be at every single campaign that that person runs for the rest of their life to tell everyone that they did that. Trevor's father, Joey, a retired Marine himself, was also disappointed in the organization that he and his son, Trevor, risked their lives serving. Joey, you were not happy with the Marines initially. We heard nothing from the Marine Corps. Not, not a single representative from the Marine Corps, no Marine Corps groups, uh, VFW. I mean, people we reached out to wouldn't even respond to us. And it just kind of, to me, it just kind of uh, weakened our, you know, our motto of Semper Fidelis, you know, always faithful. Because other than the people that we do directly that we'd served with, there wasn't, I mean, I mean, I, there was a few people that were strangers that were Marines that reached out, but... Marines need to think about it this way. There's millions of former Marines. Think of the voting power that you would have. Think of the voice you would have. And you can't use any of that for another Marine? Semper Fidelis. 
When asked for comment, the Marine Corps provided CNN with a statement reading, quote, Trevor Reed served his country honorably as a Marine, and we thank him for his service. We are happy he has returned home safely and wish him and his family the best as they reunite, unquote. The Marines did not specifically address the substance of Joey Reed's criticism that they did nothing to help their son. The Georgia surprise that is defying Democrats' prediction about a controversial new voting law. Stay with us. And we're just hours away from another set of crucial primary elections, including in Georgia, where election officials are reporting record turnout in the state's early voting. The high numbers coming despite a new law in Georgia that President Biden once called Jim Crow 2.0. It included new voter ID requirements, limits on ballot drop boxes, and allowed four partisan takeovers of some local election boards. CNN's Amara Walker reports for us from Georgia now on what all of this means for not just tomorrow's race, but November's key elections. I've never been so excited to stand in line, and this has me feeling really good and very optimistic that the numbers are in, people do care, and we're putting our votes where it counts. Georgia primary voters are turning out early in record numbers. Georgia voters, you know, now they know that the nation looks at them as like a state to pay attention to. During the three-week early voting period that ended last Friday, more than 850,000 people cast a ballot in person or by mail in the Georgia primaries, a 168% increase compared to the same time period of the 2018 primary. That's according to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who is seeking re-election this year. As you recall, when we passed the Election Integrity Act of 2021, everyone said it was going to make it hard for people to vote. Well, the numbers prove them wrong, doesn't it? The turnout defying predictions from many Democrats and voting rights activists that Georgia's new voting law could lead to a drop-off in voting. President Biden and Stacey Abrams, who's running unopposed in Georgia's Democratic gubernatorial primary, both likened the bill to Jim Crow last year. We have to remember that voter suppression isn't about stopping every voter. It's about blocking and impeding those voters who are considered inconvenient. The controversial election law signed by Governor Kemp in March 2021 imposed new voter ID requirements for absentee ballots, limits the use of ballot drop boxes and the hours they're available, restricts how voters can be provided food and water near a polling location, and it added an additional Saturday of early voting while making it optional for counties to have two Sundays for early voting. This actually expands access. The Republican-controlled Georgia legislature approved the voting law after Joe Biden became the first Democratic presidential candidate to win in Georgia in nearly three decades. We are clear that that was voter suppression and and intended to intimidate voters. They are like, whatever they try to do, it's not going to work. We are going to show up and show out. Karan Blair with the New Georgia Project, a voter registration group founded by Abrams, says the new law may be mobilizing voters, but it's still creating obstacles. When we're at the polls tomorrow, how do we hand out ponchos and not get arrested? While it's hard to measure the impact of Georgia's voting law, it's clear enthusiasm for the Georgia primary remains high. Yes, there was a lot of hyperbole on both sides about SB202. The question is, Will those tweaks impact voters in ways that could influence the outcome of a close race? And Jake, of the more than 850,000 people who cast their votes early in this Georgia primary, 56% pulled a Republican ballot, while 43% voted in the Democratic 
party, uh, a primary. This is according to the Secretary of State's office. Also, election officials tell me they are expecting uh, a record-breaking turnout in this election. The last time a record was set was back in 2018 when 1.3 million people cast their votes. Jake. All right, Amber Walker in Atlanta for us. Thanks so much. Let's discuss. Uh, Jackie Kucinich, let me start with you. CNN's Eva McKend interviewed Stacey Abrams, and she asked her about this Republican argument. How can their new voting laws be suppressive when uh, there's record early vote turnout? Uh, Here's what Stacey Abrams said in response. I am tired of hearing about being the best state in the country to do business when we are the worst state in the country to live. When you're number 48 for mental health, when you're number one for maternal mortality. The moral equivalent of saying that voter turnout diffuses or disproves voter suppression is like saying that more people getting in the water means there are no longer any sharks. Those two things are just not true. And we know that voter suppression is alive and well in Georgia, and we're going to continue to fight back. Okay, we'll, we'll get to the <laughs> question about Georgia is the worst place to right. w- live in a second. We, uh, what, what I want you to talk about is the, the, what you just said about um, the voter turnout diffuse or dis- disproves voter suppression is like saying more people getting in the water means there are no longer any sharks. What do you make of that argument? You know, this is something that Stacey Abrams has been talking about as long as Stacey Abrams has been a national figure in politics. And one of the things that's happened since this law was passed is that there's been a lot of education for voters on the ground by Stacey Abrams' group and by other voting groups because they want to make sure that people still get out to vote and know what the laws are and what the difficulties may be or what some of the obstacles may be. But, I mean, if you looked at some of the earlier versions of this law when they tried to ban Sundays, um, and souls for the polls are obviously a very um, big deal in the black church. Um, so that's that's I, I think a lot of this is rooted in what what the process was and um, what some of the obstacles are going into the yeah. in tomorrow. I, look, I think it's always good if more people are voting. Right. Like, can we just all agree on that? This yeah. is a system okay. where we need people to participate or it does not work. So the fact that there are more people going to the polls, that there are more people who are able to cast their vote that's absolutely good news. And you do have to give Stacey Abrams' group some credit for doing all of those education and outreach groups, uh, outreach to do this. You can't forget also that, you know, Republicans have been sending a message to many people in Georgia saying, hey, don't trust the system. Don't trust what's going on. And that, I think, backfires. But I think we have to remember that what she was saying is the disproportionate impact that the laws that were passed have on black, brown, rural, disabled voters. Let me give you an example. When they they do exact match to try to identify people who are non-citizens, by their own admission, 63% of the people that they kick out actually are citizens. Mm -hmm. And those people then have to themselves fight the system to be reinstated so that they can go vote. So I think what's important to remember here, Stacey and a number of other groups working on the ground, what these numbers show is that they've been working very hard to work around laws that actually do make it harder for people to vote. And that is a bad thing. And I think it's also important to note that everybody at this table agrees the more people who vote, the better. But unfortunately, Jake, there are too many people in my former political party who don't believe that, which is why they're trying to do what they're doing in state after state. So speaking of uh, Republicans, um, let's talk about that first clip uh, we heard in which Stacey Abrams said that she was uh, sick, of that, sick of hearing that Georgia is the best state in the country to do business when it's, according to her, the worst state in the country to live. That is a comment that a lot of Republicans are saying uh, shows why that she's not fit to be governor. Now, we should point out that you worked for her in 2018. Yes. Um, 
it, it's uh, not exactly a bumper sticker, Georgia. Vote for Stacey Abrams, Georgia is the worst place to live. Well, again, I mean, knowing Stacey, obviously within that same sentence, she corrected herself and acknowledged that they're going to use it against her, which, of course, not surprising they did. But the point that she was making is look at the work that is undone. Look at the way that on the Republican primary side, which is a dumpster fire of who can out MAGA each other, when we still, we didn't take the Medicaid expansion money, rural hospitals are closing, highest rates of maternal mortality, high uninsurance rates. The point being, there is so much other work that affects people's lives that is being undone. Mm-hmm. And her point is to, what are you supposed to do in an election? Draw a contrast. So her contrast is, they are so blinded by ideology They're not getting the work done for people. So, Joe, I want to ask you about this, because on the Republican side, uh, Vice President Pence has endorsed the incumbent governor, Brian Kemp, while Donald Trump has endorsed uh, former Senator David Perdue in the the primary. Um, The Trump team sent us this statement about the fact that Pence has endorsed Kemp. Mike Pence was set to lose a governor's race in 2016 before he was plucked up and his political career was salvaged. Now, desperate to chase his lost relevance, Pence is parachuting into races, hoping someone is paying attention. That is Donald Trump talking about his vice president. Not at all a surprise. I feel bad for Pence, but it's it's too late. I mean, if if Pence ran against Trump right now, Jake, he'd have no shot. Uh, None at all. And I think we we get bogged down in this. Who did Trump endorse and did Trump have a good night or not? Every single Republican that's won a primary this year and every Republican that will win a primary is a huge bow down in front of Donald Trump Republican. Brian Kemp in Georgia is as well. That's what Pence is up against. Although a lot of Trump endorsed candidates have lost primaries for governor in Idaho uh, and I think in Nebraska. Right, And it looks like Brian Kemp is going to be on the way to repudiating uh, the Trump endorsement. I mean, he and David Perdue, Trump and David Perdue are good friends, business business yeah. people. Um, I just, I have to say that I think if you pull back the lens a little bit, it's important to recognize that while we talk a lot about Trump and he has consumed us for the last five years, there are many examples of powerful Republican interests that are trying to stand up to him at every turn. Mike Pence is one of them. Mm. Now, I mean, this statement was rough, but also the former president didn't really do anything when his supporters were at the Capitol singing, chanting, hang Mike Pence. So, like, I'm sorry, but this is not the worst thing <laughs> that Donald Trump has ever said or done when it, when it relates to, to Mike Pence. You also have the Club for Growth. They're throwing all kinds of money, Alabama Senate, the Pennsylvania uh, Senate race, playing, basically saying, you know what, we have a different opinion, we want a different different person. Now, we still got a couple months to to see how this all shakes out. But I do think it's interesting that while, yes, the party is beholden to him, the base of the party is beholden to him, you're seeing people attempt to buck that authority in in new and different ways. Though I do think this is a very Trumpy thing that he's doing. Brian Kemp doesn't need Mike Pence to come and campaign for him. (laughs) Yes, that too. Brian Kemp is way out front of, of David Perdue. This is about Mike Pence. This is about Mike Pence separating himself from Donald Trump. And that's and that, him that, running that, for president. And, and him running for president. Exactly. This is nothing to do. I mean, I'm sure he's friends with Brian Kemp. Sure it's it, also but. about the division within the Republican Party and the chaos. And what I keep trying to remind people is imagine this chaos in the U.S. Senate. Nothing is going to get done. And you've still seen these candidates trying to out-Trump each other, both in governor's races Senate, and Senate races. And so... 
whether Trump is a factor or not, it's the perception that these candidates have about what the voters want to hear from them right. that I think is very troubling and will be difficult in a general election electorate. And be sure to join me tomorrow night for Election Night in America. We'll be covering all these key primaries across the country. Our live coverage begins at 7 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, a deadly shooting on a New York City subway in the middle of the day, just weeks after a different subway shooting. The mayor's new plan to stop the violence. Stay with us. In our national lead, more deadly violence on the New York City subway. Police released pictures and are asking the public to help identify a man they say is wanted for homicide after Sunday's fatal shooting of a 48-year-old man riding in the last car of a train. CNN's Bryn Gingras is outside the station where the suspect got off the train and fled. Officials say... The gunman and victim had no interaction, Bryn, before the shooting? No, Jake, they're calling it an unprovoked attack. Actually, witnesses are telling police that that gunman walked up and down the subway car before pulling out a gun and firing at that victim close range to their chest. And that person, 48-year-old Daniel Enriquez, ended up dying at the hospital. Even more chilling is the fact that that man allegedly stayed on the subway car as it pulled into this train stop here at Canal Street in Manhattan and then got off and ran away and didn't hurt anyone else. Now we're actually seeing outside this train station posters set up with those pictures that you're showing your viewers asking for the public's help and not only just identifying who that person is, but also uh, trying to apprehend them. Keep in mind, Jake, this happened at the late morning hour, a time where reportedly that victim was headed to brunch with family. It really hits home for a lot of New Yorkers here who are already on edge about taking mass transit. Of course, Transit crimes are only a small amount of the major crime and overall crime that's happening here in New York City. But we know this is a mayor who has sort of worked on an agenda of uh, fighting this crime. And certainly this is seen as somewhat of a setback toward that. And, and Mayor Adams is talking about using technology to track guns on the subway. How, how would that even work? Well, that's a big question. Uh, he has mentioned this before. We heard about it a lot. Of, get, of course, 10 weeks or a few weeks ago when we had that subway shooter uh, in Brooklyn during the morning commute where 10 people were shot, no one was, was killed. Uh, but he brought that up and talking about having somewhat of metal detector type situation inside subway stations. Most recently, he talked about possibly having some sort of situation at the Port Authority to fight illegal guns coming into New York City, being a transit hub for New York City. So a lot of details that are sort of out there, but there's no not, not really fleshed out, uh, but certainly this is something that is raising a lot of eyebrows to help kind of secure the transit system, but also raises a lot of questions. How do you do that in such a busy city with a lot of commuters uh, and also civil rights issues? So, so many questions, a lot more than answers at this point, but we'll stay tuned for that, Jake. All right, Bryn Grass in New York City, thanks so much. His twin brother encouraged him to testify against President Trump at the first impeachment trial, and now a report shows just how far the Trump administration was willing to go for revenge. That's next. In our politics lead now, a damning report from the Pentagon exposing just how far Trump administration officials went to punish people connected with Trump's first impeachment trial, including the brother of a key witness. The witness, then Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, heard Trump's 2019 phone call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. That's, of course, the call when Trump tied USAID to Ukraine to a request for the Ukrainians to investigate Trump's then likely opponent, Joe Biden, and his son Hunter Alexander Vindman raised his concerns with his twin brother, Lieutenant Colonel Yevgeny Vindman, an Army attorney who was serving with the National Security Council, who relayed his brother's concerns to National Security Council officials. Now, the Pentagon Inspector General's report says Trump officials then retaliated, giving Yevgeny Vindman unfavorable reviews. 
stripping him of responsibilities. And days after the Senate acquitted Trump, firing him. Evgeny Vindman joins us now along with his attorney, Mark Zaid. So, Evgeny, thanks so much for joining us. You're here in a personal capacity, we should note, not representing the government. The report from the Pentagon Inspector General makes no recommendations for any subsequent action since your record has been corrected, but this must have been very difficult to go through. It was difficult, Jake. Um, it was 21 months in the making, um, and that was not including the time I spent in what felt like an armed camp since the July phone call. Um, Alex and I spent uh, up until February of the following year, just days after the acquittal in the Senate in the, the White House, where uh, it, it did feel like a, uh, an enemy camp, uh, whispers, and um, it was tough. And I'm, I'm glad that the DODIG uh, made the finding. Um, I think 21 months is fr- rather long uh, in what appeared to me a, a fairly straightforward um, case of retaliation. But uh, I felt vindicated, and I feel good about that. Mark, this report shows Trump administration officials violating just about every whistleblower protection on the books, but they're gone. Trump lost. So is it simply case closed? Now, that is a problem, Jake, because accountability is really at the heart of trying to demonstrate why whistleblowers should come forward. And the vindication was absolutely welcomed. Yevgeny followed the rules, followed the law, and how he properly reported his concerns uh, of a whistleblowing nature. But now, because the officials left, there's not much that or anything that the DOD inspector general can do. Now, that doesn't mean that these individuals cannot be debarred from future federal employment. Perhaps they will be made sure not to have security clearances and access to classified information. And because most, if not, I think all, Uh, of the individuals are lawyers, there could be consequences from their respective states that license them since there was this finding that they violated the law. And Yevgeny, you say you feel vindicated by this report, but you're going to be retiring from the military uh, soon. What are you going to do next? Jake, um, I intend to make myself uh, useful, and um, I have not given up on uh, making sure that I I support uh, national security in any way that I can. And uh, I'm very interested in the events that are occurring in Ukraine. That's certainly not only a humanitarian um, disaster, but it's also a national security concern. So um, I've planted a vegetable garden, and uh, I'll do that for a while, but I'll also focus on other things and and making sure uh, that we uh, hold officials accountable and uh, uh, reinforce democracy and democratic principles. Mark, who, who are the individuals named in this report that were retaliating uh, in contra- contrary to whistleblower laws? Who, who needs to be shamed, uh, even if there is no ma- way to have any accountability? Well, it was because Evgeny is a lawyer. It was lawyers within the White House Counsel's Office and the National Security Council up to the National Security Advisor himself. I think, if I recall, I don't have the report in front of me, of course, I think there were at least four individuals named specifically. Now, we also actually named President Donald Trump as one who was retaliating against. And there's not much of any indication as to whether or not there was an attempt by the Defense Department to explore Trump's personal uh, involvement. Now, I will say none of the individuals actually cooperated with the DOD IG. That is noted in the report. 
And that is very telling that they calculated and made this intentional decision not to cooperate. That's obviously very disappointing and reflects on them. And, and Evgeny, um, you, you noted that uh, you're interested in the war in Ukraine. I think it's been famously covered that you and your brother uh, are Ukrainian-American, originally born in Ukraine, but served in the U.S. military, full citizens, obviously. Um, when you think back about the first impeachment and that scandal and President Trump trying to tie aid to Ukraine with uh, finding dirt on Biden and his son. Um, Do you think that had an effect on Putin's decision to invade? So, first of all, um, what it what I think it does uh, is reinforce that this is always about national security. It certainly was to Alex and I when we reported it. We reported it to the chain of command uh, through appropriate channels uh, with national security in mind. And we had a clear idea of where Ukraine was even back then on the razor's edge between democracy and, and autocracy. And I think that um, that is 100 percent true uh, and has been borne out. And, and frankly, uh, there are a number of events that I think led to uh, the calculation to invade Ukraine. And uh, the phone call was one of those events. What are some other ones? Um, I think that, uh, for instance, um, there was an assessment that, uh, that Ukraine was weak. Uh, there was a miscalculation, a strategic miscalculation, uh, that uh, Putin's forces were strong and Ukraine's were weak. So he overestimated his capability and he underestimated Ukraine's capability. Um, I think January 6th is another uh, example um, I think he felt and he uh, saw weakness mm-hmm. in the United States division. And so he made a calculation that it was the right time for him to invade. All right. Well, congratulations on having your name cleared. Uh, you have Genny Vindman. Appreciate it. Mark Zaid, thank you so much for thank joining you. us. Appreciate it. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you, know, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. The whole two hours right there for you. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.